0: North Boulevard. Thanks for coming, those of you online. Thanks for joining us online. Um, A really, really nice crowd at the 9 o'clock outdoor service, and uh, I know we'll have a good crowd online and also here in person for the 1030 service. Just want to make sure all of you are aware of the fact that we plan to keep the online service uh, probably forever. So uh, those of you who uh, have, have reason to stay home, uh, don't want to come back to the crowds, or really shouldn't, and some of you shouldn't come back to the crowds, it's not anytime soon. Just want to make sure you can rest assured we're going to continue the online service and uh, as a blessing, not just to those here in Merseville. We actually want to enhance the online uh, service. What we'd like for it to do, to do is to become a community. So, even more than just watching a service, but experiencing it and joining a community. And so I want you to feel comfortable with that and for as long as you need to do. But I also am excited to say that God willing on October the 11th, we're gonna resume normal schedules at all of our campuses, including at East Campus, which means that unless there's a spike or unless there's some really bad news that we can't foresee yet, we're gonna resume our Sunday school program, God willing, starting on August 11th. That's the Sunday as a fall break closes down. And so we'll have adult classes, teen classes, children's classes, might start a little smaller, just because we're trying to get volunteers and trying to coordinate everything and keep the social distancing could be difficult. I want you to know the eight o'clock service will be mask required. And we haven't decided yet about what to do with the 1030 service. We'll just wait and see whatever the situation brings, maybe mask, maybe optional. We don't know yet, we haven't made a commitment, but we wanna make sure that we've given every possible option because we believe that what we were doing in February of this year, was important. And it was important enough that we ought to keep doing it. If it wasn't important, we shouldn't have been doing it. But it was important because the people of God matter, our coming together, it matters. Our cultivating our relationships, they matter. Our having church, it matters. And so as soon as we can do this reasonably without compromising health, that's what we want to do. So we're aiming for October the 11th, put it down, and uh, let's see what God does with that. We're working through the second chapter of Ephesians today and I have to confess that there's a little bit of a problem with this chapter, and here it is. You're going to find this chapter to be an easy chapter to understand, I think. It's pretty straightforward. I think actually it's, it's just a beautiful, powerful chapter. It's easy to get your brain around, but there's a problem that I'm not sure how easy it is for us to feel Ephesians chapter 2 in our gut. So uh, at the West Campus today, David Hunsaker is preaching out of Ephesians chapter 2. Justin Sims is preaching at the Smyrna Laverne campus. And we all met and uh, we've talked. In fact, even last night, David and I were on the phone revisiting the question, how can we help the people who are present? Those of you online, wherever you are, how can we help you not only understand this text, but how could we help you feel it in your gut? Because we really respond to things we feel in our gut more than we do just things that we happen to believe are true and I have to confess it's a little bit of a challenge it's a challenge for me so I'm not picking on you I'm not suggesting there's something wrong with you what I'm saying is this text was intended to be felt in the gut and not just understood with the mind so that's the challenge I think I face and I want you to ask yourself the question if you were I and you were preaching this sermon what would you do To help people not only understand what the text says, but really to feel it in the gut so much that you want to get up and do something about it. That's the real challenge. Let me just start with this text. It's the last couple verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the last two verses, where Paul just makes a statement that God is building us into his holy temple. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But it raises the question, what is a temple? Now, in Ephesus, they understood temples because Ephesus was a large city in Paul's day, and it had all sorts of temples. And uh, we all instinctively know that a temple is a place where you worship a God. But what we might not realize is that when Greeks and Romans built their temples, they put inscriptions on their temples, inscriptions on most of their public buildings, in fact, because what they were trying to do was not only say, here you can worship this God, but they were trying to project the values or the virtues or the, the positions of this or that God. So the inscriptions were propaganda. Propaganda. I'll just show you uh, one illustration from the city of Ephesus. So this is a uh, partial reconstruction of a library that was built in about the year 110 AD. It's called the Library of Celsus or Celsus, we might say. This particular library was built by a man when his father Celsus died, and I want you to see what he does. So he has all these idols scattered all over this, um, all over the, uh, the library, and he has, under each one of the idols, he has some attribute of his father. So this is or the, the virtues of Celsus. Here it is episteme, which means something like the skill or the giftedness of Celsus. Here's Sophia. So this is the wisdom of Celsus. And what he's, trying, what he's trying to argue is simply this. When he built this temple, my dad had all these great virtues. So he put statues and the virtues actually on the pediments of the temple. And Here's what I want to say. When the Lord says to us, as he does in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are being built into the temple of God, he doesn't just mean that we should be a place where God is worshiped. He means that we should be, pardon the word, a propaganda piece for God. The people ought to be able to look at us and see the virtues of God inscribed upon our lives. In fact, the, the very words that were used in Celsus's library are words that appear in the Bible as well. That, in fact, one of the words actually appears in Ephesians where Paul talks about the uh, arete, the, the excellence, or it may, the word sometimes is translated valor or virtue, or he talks about Sophia, the wisdom of God, or when he talks about God, uh, the, the epistemi, the, the knowledge of God, the skills of God. So what is it that makes us so distinct from the world that when the world looks at us, they get a, again, pardon the word, propaganda piece for our God? And that's actually the challenge of this sermon i think i think it's a challenge for a couple of reasons here's one many of us were raised in churches we were raised good lives we were raised good parents you know for a lot of us when we were baptized when we gave our lives to jesus it wasn't that big of change like if you were raised in church and you're baptized You know, you probably don't think, oh my goodness, I was such a terrible pagan back then, and now look at how good I am. For a lot of us, it wasn't that big of a transition. So we just may not appreciate how far God went to save us because we don't really realize how much sinfulness had characterized us. I think also one of the challenges to feel in this text in your gut is that Americans live in a very ambiguous place now. So maybe the theme movie for us, I've not seen it and you shouldn't either, is the movie Fifty Shades of Grey because it does seem to characterize so much of America where we have a hard time calling anything right and anything wrong anymore. And so everything's ambiguous. And if everything is ambiguous, it's really hard to say I went from darkness to light. What I really want to happen is for you to hear this text, not just understand it, but as Paul would expect, feel it in your gut. Like honk your horn. Get up and say, I want to do something about this. This is such good news that I want to live this kind of life from this point forward. If I were going to summarize this text, here's how I would summarize it. Ephesians chapter 2 is the story of how we went from being dead zombies to living stones in the temple of God. Maybe you could put it this way. When we were in Sierra Leone, I heard this, uh, this phrase used by several individuals who had planted multiple churches. I would say, how in the world do you plant so many churches? Some guy's been a Christian three years. He's already planted 10 churches. And he would say, well, through God, I went from zero to hero in three years. I like that little phrase. I went from zero to hero. That's what Ephesians 2 is. It's a story of how God took us from zero to hero in one moment and a miraculous moment in our life. It's a storyline that, again, is easy to understand but really hard to appreciate. I just don't know that it's earth-shattering for us anymore. Again, not your fault. It's not like you've got all these problems and therefore you can't really feel it. It's just mostly we've got it so good we may not realize how bad we used to have it. Tim Keller, who was... uh Preached in uh, for years in uh, Manhattan, had one a, a really fine church, a church planter also there in Manhattan, a great thinker, clear, very clear thinker Keller. I heard him once speak, and, and he he said the problem with evangelism in America's urban context is that you first have to persuade everybody that they're really bad, so that they'll want to be saved. And he says most people in the urban context just don't think they're all that bad, and the truth is most of us feel that way. Again, I'm not saying you're evil for feeling that way. I'm just saying. It's really hard to appreciate how much you're saved when you never really thought you were all that bad anyway. So one of the things that Paul is going to do is he is going to paint a picture of how bad we are without Jesus. And I'm not sure it resonates with us. Even though it's true, I'm not sure. So if you were me and you were preaching this sermon, how would you make it resonate with people? Would you spend like 10 minutes telling everybody this is how bad you really are? I don't really want to do that. Would you say, well, y'all are just hard-headed if you can't see how bad you were. Like, I don't think you're hard-headed, so I don't want to do that. Maybe a good way for us to see just what God did when he translated us out of death, zombie death, bloated, floating corpses on the water, when he took that, the bloated, floating corpse that was you, When he took that and said, I'm going to make a temple of the Holy Spirit out of it, maybe one way for us to appreciate is to look around and see how bad sin really is. Not just in our lives, but around us. Well, let's walk through the text. We'll do it fairly quickly. I just want you to see as we walk through, Paul really only makes two points in this text, and they are the world is enslaved, but God has saved us, and he saved us for the purpose of making us into temples. Let's start with chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 1. Uh, you, you, it would really be great if you had a Bible open and in front of you, even though I'll have it on the screen, nothing beats having it in your lap. So those of you at home, those of you who are watching all over the country, and those of you who are here, I just encourage you to get your phone out if you've got a Bible app or get a, a printed Bible, and let's work through this. Here's what Paul says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So I just wanted to see a couple of things in this text. First thing I want you to see is that Paul says at one point every single one of us was dead. And I want to really focus on that for half a second because I do think the tendency of North Americans who believe that everybody's basically good. The tendency of North Americans is to say, well, I was pretty good, but I wasn't great. And God came and made me great. And that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say you were drowning and you were reaching up and God met you halfway. That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, you know, we're all basically good, but man, with Jesus, we just learned how to be even better. That is not what he says. What he says is you were a bloated dead corpse. And it matters. Because what can a bloated dead corpse do to come to life? And the answer is nothing. It can do nothing. That we were at the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, we were utterly hopeless, utterly lifeless. We were dead zombies. We might have appeared to be alive because we moved around like zombies do, but there was no life in us. And one way for us to understand what God has really done is to appreciate, How we had no hope of redemption before Jesus came. The second thing I want you to note is that when Paul talks about this, he talks about our enslavement. He says to the ruler of the air. That's a mystical way to talk. The ruler of the air. He's talking about Satan. And the reason he calls Satan the ruler of the air is he wants us to understand that Satan is all around us. He wants us to know that if you're not following Jesus, you're already giving in to that power, that evil power that's all around us all the time. Satan is all around us all the time. And I wanna make sure you know this, every single one of you is a disciple. Every one of you is a disciple. You are either a disciple of Jesus Christ or you are a disciple of Satan. There's no middle ground here. This is what Paul's teaching us. Either you're dead in which you're following Satan, or you've been made alive by Jesus in which you're following Jesus. Everybody falls into those two camps. And by the way, it's really helpful for us to remember this, not in a mean-spirited or ugly way, but to appreciate that in in God's economy, there are two kinds of people, and they're not black and white. In God's economy, it's not Latino and Asian and North American. Uh, It's not European. It's none of that. In God's economy, there are two kinds of people. Dead people who follow Satan and living people who follow Jesus. That's it. And we have to be able to see the world that way. If we don't see the world that way, we cannot be the temple which he's called us to be. Because we'll always be amorphous. We'll always have porous boundaries. We'll never take a stand for everything, anything. Because everybody's basically okay and we're just moving in and out. That's not what we've been called to be. We've been called to recognize that we once were dead and now we are alive. And I want you to see something else here. I want you to see that when Paul wants to say, this is how you'll know if someone is following Satan, he says there in verse 3, you will know it because they'll be gratifying the cravings of their flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Sexual sin is a primary indicator that you are a disciple of Satan. That's what Paul says. And I will say that North Americans grossly underestimate the adverse power of sexual sin. North Americans seem to want to treat every symptom of sexual sin and never actually address the disease itself. So we, want, we, want, we, we come up with all sorts of medications to deal with sexually transmitted diseases rather than talk about sexual holiness. We want to deal with the, the problem of poverty. We should. And so we talk about government programs, which program gets which funding and so forth and so on. Ignoring the fact that much of the poverty in the United States of America is the direct result of our sexual ethic. The fact that we have men and women making babies and then separating with a mama left on her own to raise a baby and not enough money. We don't deal with the root cause. When we deal with social ills, gangs, incarceration rates, drugs and whatnot, it's as though we're totally blind to the fact that in so many cases, it was the fact that someone did not have a father, that they grew up in such a dysfunctional society that they turn to all these social ills. I'm just suggesting Paul's right. One of the starting points for understanding whether a person follows Jesus or Satan is what they do with sex. And I haven't even mentioned things like mental health issues, where there's so much depression and self-esteem issues from a dad who was absent or a mother who never loved. In so many ways, Paul is describing our world, the pornification of America. And what he's teaching us is that kind of living is dead. So you may think to yourself, well, I understand what this is saying. I understand the sermon. I don't really feel it in my gut. But look around you. Don't you see it in America? We have children who are watching and children who are present, so I have to speak in kind of adult code language. But you know, Netflix has just come out with a film that if it had been filmed in America, the producer would have gone to prison for filming that. And millions of Americans will watch it and pay for it. The governor of the state of California just signed a bill that lowers the penalty for that which I can't speak. You know, if you haven't paid any attention to the news, it's not hard to find this. So even now, matters related to children, I'm trying to speak in code language. Those barriers are starting to fall in America. And by the way, progressivism will head that way. It's the next inevitable step for progressivism in America. What I'm suggesting to you is we, all we have to do is open our eyes and look around us and see, oh my goodness, it's not such a great world. There's an awful lot of sin and sickness. There's a lot of death around us. And Paul points it out and he wants us to know, this is, this is what God saved you from. You can't act like this. You got saved from this. And I do want you to note the last sentence here where he says, by nature, we deserve the punishment we're going to get. The consequences of our actions will catch up with us. So I know this is kind of a downer. And um, I feel like I'm up here spanking you and kind of going off, you know, being all negative in this sermon. I get it. But somehow, if we can't feel this in our gut, how bad the world without Jesus is, we'll probably never be motivated to be the temple he's called us to be. I want you not just to understand it. We need to feel it in our gut. And that leads me to this beautiful, beautiful text in verse 4 where Paul opens up with the word, but, and I'm just going to say it at the risk of irritating you. Verse 4, this but is the biggest but in the Bible. This but changes everything. Because what Paul has said in the first three verses is you were dead, you were a corpse, you were bloated, you had no hope, you were subject to wrath, you were trapped in discipleship of Satan himself. But, and our job, our job as a people of God is get everybody on the first three verses to get on the other side of this but. To get everybody from being, well, I was dead, I was lost, I was following Satan and so forth. To get them to the place where God has raised them up. That's what God. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. How God took me from zero to hero. How God took me from a bloated dead corpse of a zombie. To becoming a living stone in his temple for the sake of the whole world to see who he is. So we have to get to verse 4. Or it's just bad news. And what does he say? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, by the way, a fantastic phrase, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, for it's by grace you have been saved. Can I just pause and just make sure that we get this? God has already raised you up. When you were baptized, you were already raised from the dead. That's why baptism is so important. It is the death and then the resurrection of you as a person. You have another resurrection coming, but already you've received one resurrection. And God raised us up with Christ, he says, and seated us. Already we're seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. By the way, how can it be that you're already sitting in heaven? I see some of you right here. I can't see all of you through the screen, but maybe I can. (laughs) How is it that we can already be seated in the heavenlies? And the answer is, everything is spiritual. Remember, that's what we said about Ephesians. When you pull back the screen, everything is spiritual. Paul wants you to know spiritually, you're already sitting in heaven. You're already sitting with Jesus. Already in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So why did God do all of this? Well, on the one hand, he does it because he loves us. But maybe there's something even bigger. God wanted a temple set in the middle of the world that had inscribed upon it his virtues, his promises, his hope, his glorious name. God did all this, not just for you. God did it for him. I'm part of his story. I mean, God's part of my story, yeah. But really, at the end of the day, whose story matters? God's story matters. I'm part of his story. The story of how God built a temple right in the middle of a pagan world. I'm part of it. Let's keep going. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Oftentimes, we look at verses 8, 9, and 10, and we say, okay, these are the verses that help us escape legalism. And by the way, I just want you to know that's true. So if you use these verses to make a case against the legalism that some of you feel like you grew up with, I'm not doubting that you did, but I know sometimes we internalize things that might not actually be there. But, but, but I don't doubt that a lot of you grew up in legalistic churches, heavily traditionalist churches, where you never felt good enough. That's the thing I'm addressing. You just never felt like, I'll, I'll, you just felt I'll never be good enough. Then you turn to Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, and it sets your heart free because you realize, oh my goodness, I, could, I never was good enough, and God saved me anyway. If you're using this text in that way, God bless you, you should, because the text says that. But I think that wasn't Paul's originally po- original point. Paul wasn't in an argument between the Reformed tradition and the Catholic tradition when he wrote this. That was 1,500 years later. What Paul was dealing with is the question of why? Why did God raise you up, a dead bloated corpse? And the answer is, well, you didn't raise yourself, he did, and he did it, verse 10, so that you could be his handiwork. That's the real question here. Why did God do this? And by the way, the word translated handiwork here in Greek is, um, it is poiesis, and it's the word from which we get our word poetry. So what Paul says is God raised you a bloated dead corpse, a zombie, and he made you his poetry. You are his handiwork. You're his masterpiece. You're God's finest composition. Why? Because God wanted someone, Paul says, to do his good works. He created us so we could be his temple. I showed you this Library of Celsus there in Ephesus. And there on the library, the wisdom of Celsus. There on the library, the virtue or excellence of Celsus. There on the library, the episteme, uh, the, the, the skill set of Celsus. God wanted one of those right here in this pagan world. So what he did was he raised you up and said, I'm going to turn you into that. So now you can be my, pardon the phrase, propaganda piece on world, on, the, on planet Earth, in the world. You're the way I want the world to know about me. So you can see perhaps why David Huntsaker and I last night were on the phone for an hour trying to figure out. This is not hard to teach, but how can you teach it in such a way that everybody's not yawning? And like, okay, when are you going to get to the rest of the sermon? How can you teach it in a way where people want to jump and shout? Because this is worth jumping and shouting about. How can you teach it that way? And I have to confess to you, it's pretty obvious I haven't done that yet because you're not jumping and shouting. How can we feel it in our gut, the fact that we have been raised from the dead? We have gone from zombie to temple. We have gone from zero to hero in the hands of a God who is rich in mercy. How can we feel it? And I haven't answered that question yet. Let's move on, because the second part, and I see that I've actually outlined it dividing these two, which now in hindsight, I shouldn't have done it because it's easier just to just have two points. Now we're reconciled to God. Let's, let's listen to the rest of this text, starting at verse 11, where Paul says, therefore, remember. Now he says remember twice in the NIV, and he interrupts it. He says remember, then he gives a little subordinate clause, and he comes back to remember. But Paul wants us to remember where we once were. And this, again, this is what I would love to be able to accomplish with my words. I would love to be able to accomplish a gut remembrance where you just said, oh my goodness, I remember what it was like to be lost. Because that's what he says, remember what it was like. And again, we're up against all sorts of obstacles here. And one of them was a good obstacle. I was eight years old when I was baptized. Grew up in a great church. Mom and dad were great parents. And I have to be honest, I don't remember being a really bad guy when I was seven years old. You know, to my knowledge, I had never committed murder. I'd never, you know, I wasn't in a gang at the age of seven. I don't remember any particular big change in my life from my baptism at age eight, uh, on August 27th of 1969 to my post baptismal life. So it's kind of hard for me to say, boy, I remember, you know, I was a really rough eight, eight year old back then. Like I don't have that experience. So it's hard to feel it in your gut. So here's what I've decided. The best way for me to feel it in my gut is like this. I remind myself not of how bad a person I was at eight years old, although Paul says I was dead, I remind myself instead of what I felt when I made the decision I got to be baptized. Now, that you can relate to. I remember talking to my dad. I was eight years old, and I I don't know why it dawned on me, but it dawned on me I was lost, and I wanted to be saved, and I wanted to follow Jesus. That dawned on me. I didn't know much about it, but I I knew I needed to do it. And I remember my dad saying, I don't think you're old enough, and I, I basically threatened him. Maybe that's why I needed baptism, because I was threatening my dad. But I just essentially said, you know, dude, do what you got to do. I've got to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to be baptized, you know. I'd already decided if I had to sneak in and do it in the, bat- in the bathtub without him knowing it, I was going to do it and count it. But I had made my mind up because whatever was in my past, what I knew was that I did not want to spend another day outside of Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember the moment when you said, I don't want to wait another moment for this. I got to do this now. Well, if you can remember that, bring that into this text. Remember, Paul says, remember what it was like. Remember that formerly you who are called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, listen to how he describes lost people. So the people you interact with who have not been saved by Jesus, this is who they are. He says, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's what I was like on August 26, 1969, even if I didn't understand it. So Paul just wants us to remember this is what God did for us, zero to hero. Zombies to temples. And he goes on. He says, but now in Christ you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed, catch up with it, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I just had Paul's. We're going to keep reading in a second, but here's what's going on. Paul is essentially saying to those of you who are Gentiles, so that those of you who are of European descent, non-Jewish European descent, Scott Irish, Germanic, whatever it is, French, those of you who are of African descent, those of you who are Asian, those of you who are of Latino descent, Paul wants you to know that at one point, if you were not a Jew, you were outside the covenant. By the way, the Jews weren't really good in the covenant either. But what he says is, while you were so far away, God brought you into his covenant. And he did that so that Jews and Gentiles all could become one new human. Remember, there are only two races in Jesus. Those who are saved and those who are lost. Those are the only two. There are only two groupings there are, the saved and the lost. And so Paul says, God brought us all in. So now we all get to participate in the citizenship in God's kingdom, in the family of God, in the promises of God, in the hope of God. Now all of us have access to being in Christ. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Okay, I'm going to finish the text up. So what you're seeing here is Paul describing the extent to which God was willing to go to bring us, dead corpses, into his family. And then he wraps it up by saying, and this was the purpose. So verse 19 tells you sort of the end of the story. This is the part I've been driving towards. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his, I'm going to use the word family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul's argument is God took us when we were lost, when we were slaves to sin, when we were following Satan, disciples of Satan, when we were lost in our passions and our lusts and our sexual sins, our perversities, God took us then. And because he's rich in mercy, he raised us up and now is making us into a holy temple. I just want to say one other thing before I sort of draw the lesson to a close. I do want you to notice that when Paul says that we're being built into a temple, he says that the temple is built on the foundation. You would think he would say on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but that's not what he says. He says on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul has to put that in because he knew there would be a time when people would say, well, that's what the Bible says, but that's not what I believe. Even evangelical Christians now are saying that. That if it doesn't align with my sense and my sensibilities, it can't be true. So we're hearing people who will look at what the Bible actually says, the Bible written by the apostles and the prophets. They'll look at it and they'll say, well, you know, that's what Paul said, but now we know better. Or we'll, say, we'll hear people say, you know, I know the Bible condemns same-sex activity or the Bible has very clear teachings about gender roles or the Bible has very specifics about what it means to be male or female, but they, Paul didn't really know what he was talking about. Today, we know a lot more than that. Or, you know, there's a trajectory from the scripture and you follow the trajectory and eventually you can say the scripture doesn't mean what it says. It means the opposite of what it says. Paul won't have any of that. What Paul says is, no, the temple God is building is built on the foundation of me, the apostles and the prophets. So let me say this. If you go to the scripture and you decide that you don't want to follow the scripture, instead you want to build your own religion, then do it build your own religion. But you cannot build your own religion and stand on the religion of Jesus Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. And let me say this. If you decide that you're going to go build your own religion based on your own sentiment, on your own sense of what must be true, on your own aversion to rules and what the Bible says, at least don't call it Christian. Don't insult those of us who are trying to build on the word of God. Don't insult, call, but make your own religion, but don't call it Christian. Don't teach heresy. Just say, I don't care what Jesus taught. I'm going to do it my way. It's really important that if we're going to be the temple that God designed, that we're actually the temple God designed and not the temple that we might prefer or the temple that our senses and sentiment or that some popular blogger or author is telling us would be really relevant or really cool. Instead, let's be the one that God in his rich mercy rescued us in order to build. And so, what does that look like? Well, it should remind us of some important truth. On the one hand, we know this. We're here to worship God, right? We're here to worship God. We're a temple. But remind yourself that there was another function of temples, all public buildings really, in the Greco Roman world. And that function was to propagate the religion of the person in whose behalf the temple had been built. We are not just here to worship God. We're here to do that, too. But we're here to propagate the name of our God. The world is supposed to look at us and say, oh, my goodness, that's their God? And by the way, I don't mean by that, that the world should look at us and everybody should say, oh, we love them. Like, if we really take a stand for what the scriptures teach, a lot of people are going to hate us. They hated Jesus. They crucified. They killed him. Like, you know that have your best life now thing? Jesus's best life turned out to be a crucifixion. That there are a lot of people in the world who do not want the name of the one true God put out there. They're actively seeking to suppress it. But there are so many people who just don't know, who just need to see someone say, I once was dead too. And now because he's rich in mercy, I've been made alive. I've been raised from the dead and I am sitting next to Jesus in the spiritual realms. I want you to understand that because that's all chapter 2 is about. It's the only story Paul has to tell that's worth telling. But if I were a more gifted orator, I would find a way not just for you to understand it. Man, I'd want your gut to be moving right now. I want you to say, yeah, wow, thank God for what he did. Or honestly, I would even settle for this. I would settle for, I've never heard that chapter so clearly talk about lostness. I don't like it. I'm out of here. Because at least then I'd know you took it seriously. That this text is supposed to move heaven and earth. This text is all about who we are zero to hero, corpses to temples, lost to saved alienated to reconciled, profane, sensual to sacred and holy, a follower of Satan to a follower of Jesus. Forgive me if I haven't been able to put it in a way that moves your gut. That's my fault because I know you believe it. I, I not only know you believe it, I know, uh, I know it's moved a whole lot of you already. But this text, this text, is one of the reasons why Ephesians is such a go-to book, why it's such a liturgical and powerful book, because it shares with us this profound, deep, amazing thing called grace, that God would save even me so the whole world could see what it looks like. He's offered it to you too. Many of you have already said yes to him, and you have been raised from the dead. Those of you who haven't said yes to him, take this challenge. You're you're somebody's disciple. Take this challenge. Let it be Jesus and not Satan. And if we can help you with that, tell us how. Let's stand up, even at home, if you will. Stand up and we'll sing.